0: chapter seventeen of the directory of the devout life by f b meyer this librivox recording is in the public domain read by marianne chapter seventeen the lesson of birds and flowers matthew chapter six verses twenty five to thirty four the eye that is the pure intention of the soul ceases to be single when it is diverted by the covetous desire to hoard up money. It may also be diverted by the constant pressure of anxiety. As, therefore, our Lord has been dealing with avarice, which is the special temptation of the well-to-do and prosperous, so now He turns to deal with the special temptation of the poor, which is anxious care. Of course, wealth has its anxieties as well as poverty. The rich man, whose wealth may be swept away in an hour by a panic on the stock exchange may toss on a sleepless pillow whilst the labouring man who cannot see beyond the needs of the week may be sleeping soundly through the small hours but the anxiety of those who in any event will always be certain of being provided with the necessaries of life is surely less excusable than the care of the poor man who has no nest-egg against a rainy day who may at any moment fall sick or lose his situation And who may be condemned to see first his home and then his scanty wardrobe stripped first of little comforts and then of necessaries and when all is gone his wife and children becoming every day paler thinner and hungrier it is to be noticed that our lord's tone is much gentler and more tender as he turns to address the poor who toil for their daily bread and whose slenderly provided table is often shadowed with the spectre of anxiety about to-morrow's provision. In the former paragraph, there was a tone of stern remonstrance as he spoke of the absurdity of settling the heart on things which the thief might steal and the moth corrupt. But here there is a touch of tender pity and sympathy as he says three times over, Don't be anxious. He never forgot that he was the child of the labouring class. That his mother, at his birth, had brought the gift of the poor to the temple, and that from boyhood he had been accustomed to the shifts of poverty. His frequent speech about patching garments and using old bottleskins about the price of sparrows and the scanty pittance of a laborer's life indicate that his mind was habituated to the experiences of the poor ever since he had left his mother's home abandoning the trade which had secured slender provision for himself and others, he had known what it was to have no place in which to shelter for the night, and to subsist on the chance gifts of charity and friendship. The words, take no thought, in the authorized version, do not represent the true force of the phrase as used by our Lord. We are endowed with a faculty of foresight, of scanning the horizon, of anticipating the lowering storm-clouds, and of taking in our sails. He that provideth not for his own, says the Apostle, is worse than an unbeliever. And provision involves foresight. But there is all the difference in the world between foresight and foreboding. It is the latter, not the former, that our Lord chides. A wise man must lay his carefully considered plans and work for their accomplishment, the farmer must sow in the autumn for the coming harvest the importer must arrange months beforehand for the arrival of foreign produce at a given time when the home markets will be ripe for it the manufacturer is already preparing the season's goods for next year but when all has been done that can be done our lord says you must leave the results with god you have done all that you could do now leave the outcome with your heavenly father The words which are suggested by the revised version instead of take no thought are be not anxious the greek word implies that the mind is divided and broken up from the main object and purpose of existence by the constant pressure of foreboding care as the force of a stream is lessened if the waters are diverted into two or three channels so the force of the heart and life dwindle when the perpetual dread of failure and loss calls off the soul from its primary intention and aim How can a man do his best work if he is paralyzed by a foreboding as to the contents of tomorrow when the mind is stricken with panic tossed to and fro with distraction and filled with pictures of punery and destitution when every sight of wife and family only awakens deeper dread of what may await them when paragraphs in the daily papers prophesy the pressure of hard times how can the soul do its best work it is divided distracted and torn In this paragraph our lord is dealing principally with food and raiment the simple needs of an agricultural and pastoral people and there are myriads around us on whose lips these questions are perpetual what shall we eat what shall we drink wherewithal shall we be clothed clearly we are creatures of two worlds our minds hunger for truth and our hearts for love man does not live by bread alone and there are anxieties for others, for their clothing in the garments of purity and holiness, for their feeding on the fare of the truth of God, and for their housing in the love of God, which are far more pressing and imperative than the care for their physical and temporal well-being. All these dividing thoughts are equally forbidden when our Lord says, Do not be anxious. Three times over we hear this sweet refrain, Be not anxious, 25-30 25 to 30 Be not therefore anxious. 31 to 33. Be not therefore anxious. 34. Do not be anxious about food, whether of the body, the mind, or the heart. 1. The life is more than the food. 25. When God gave life, he caused it to be dependent on the sustenance which is provided from field and orchard. It is by his own contrivance and ordering that we must be nourished by the fruits of the soil, and surely he will not be so unreasonable as to create the need and to contrive the perpetual recurrence of appetite, and then to fail in meeting both. If he has given life, does not that gift implicate its support? He must have had a purpose in the donation of life to any one of us, and surely he will be responsible for the food which is necessary if his original purpose is not frustrated. 2. Are ye not of much more value than the birds of heaven? As our Lord was speaking, flocks of pigeons were flying overhead. Swallows were darting in the air, for insects. Sparrows were flying, chirping, from stone to stone in search of food. All this wonderful and multitudinous bird-life, so blithe and happy, was a matter of constant interest to the child-heart of Jesus, and seemed to rebuke foreboding fear these little feathered creatures do not perform a stroke of work for their living they do not provide their food but only take what the creator gives as he opens his hand to supply their need that which he giveth them they gather you may walk for days through the forest and find no dead bird i grant you that the wild things of the woods do perish at certain seasons but before we charge this on any want of care on the part of the creator It would have to be shown that the balance of creation had not been disturbed by human interference do we not prognosticate the advent of a hard winter by the abundance of berries on the hedges and is not that the divine provision for the birds of the air who have neither storehouse nor barn surely if our heavenly father feeds these tiny creatures which are the pensioners on his bounty and can do nothing to help themselves he will not be unmindful of his children your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? 3. Besides, which of you being anxious can add one cubit to his stature, or, as the margin suggests, to his age? Clearly the Lord is not speaking of our physical stature, for it would be an unheard of thing, and one for which none would be specially solicitous to add a foot and a half to his stature. He is evidently alluding to the length of human life, of which the psalmist says, Thou hast made my days as a handbreadth." After all, the length of our years has been fixed by God, and we are immortal till our work is done. All our anxiety will not add an inch or a yard to the path that we are destined to tread between our cradle and our grave. God has measured it out with exact precision, and he will supply all our need until the day's march is ended and the day's labor fulfilled. Do not be anxious about clothing. 1. All the animals have their covering, the lamb its wool, the kitten its fur, and the fledgling its fluffy down, but man is born naked, and requires clothing for modesty and warmth. This was evidently the intention of the Creator, and He has filled the world with materials for our supply may we not hold him responsible to meet the needs of his own creation did he not clothe adam and eve with the skins of beasts already slain in sacrifice does he not provide for the soul the white and dazzling raiment of imputed righteousness with which we are arrayed before all worlds and will he neglect the body the body is more than raiment if he bestows the one so curiously and so wondrously wrought surely he will give the other Two besides, look again into the nature of the growth of the flowers at the time when Jesus spoke, the fields were carpeted with wild flowers. Palestine in those days was the land not of milk only, bespeaking the rich pastures, but of honey, because the air was redolent with the breath of myriads of wild flowers, bespangling the pastures, clustering in the hedgerows, and hiding in the woodland glades theirs was as careless a life as that of the birds they toil not neither do they spin for some no doubt the exotics of our greenhouses and nurseries there must be excessive care in the provision of greenhouse heat and the experienced skill of the horticulturalist the lord was not alluding to these but to the flowers of the grass which grew amid the wilds of nature or in the gardens of the poor and were cut down by the scythe or gathered to perish quickly in the hot hand of the careless child. To him these were exquisitely beautiful. Of the son of man it may be said, with peculiar appropriateness, that the meanest flower that blew awakened thoughts too deep for tears. The wild flowers of his native land were, in his eyes, attired in garments more rare and beautiful than the gorgeous magnificence of Israel's greatest king. Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. How quietly they grew, far apart from the clatter of machinery, the throw of the shuttle, the revolution of the wheel! How modestly and unobtrusively they concealed themselves from the glare of publicity in dells and woodland glades! How simple in their chaste and lovely garb! What do they teach? Was it not this lesson of their growth that god loves the beautiful and expands thought and skill in its production he might have made the world without a daisy and human life without childhood considerations of stern utility might have imposed their rigorous law on the creation of all things visible and invisible but since the creator clothes with beauty the short-lived flowers of the wilds the ephemeral insects of a summer day the shells of the minute creatures that build up the solid fabric of the rocks by the countless myriads of their tiny homes. Surely this prodigality, this lavishness, this prolific superabundance of creativeness, must mean that he can and will withhold no good thing from them that fear him, least of all clothes for their nakedness and warmth. Of course we must fulfill our part. We are not to imitate the careless, improvident life of the lower orders of creation. We must certainly sow and reap and gather into barns, we must certainly toil if we are men and spin if we are women but when we have done all we must fall back on the divine providence believing that it is vain for us to rise up early and sit up late and eat the bread of sorrows because our god will give us all we need even whilst we sleep he will not allow his children to starve or go unsheltered unclothed and unshod therefore take no thought saying what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? Be not anxious. It is heathenish. After all these things do the Gentiles seek. The blue waters of the Mediterranean were almost within sight, reminding the speaker of the great nations that lay around their shores and launched their navies on their bosom. He knew that whilst some might be feeling after God, if haply they might find him, or be found of him, the bulk of them had refused to retain him in their knowledge, and had exchanged the creator for the creature. He knew, moreover, that to most of them either there was no god, or they deemed him too far removed from subluminary things to have any interest in their lives. Of what good, then, was it to pray to him? For many the supreme conception was of fate, destiny, or chance, as the presiding arbiter and ruler of their existence amid the darkness of such conceptions what could be expected but that the grim spectre of care should haunt every life and sit uninvited at every table when man has no knowledge of the divine fatherhood what defence has he against sudden wild alarms or insidious corroding care but those whom our lord addressed had been taught to regard god as their heavenly father And to us the revelation has been more explicit than ever to them we know that we are sons of god begotten unto a living hope partakers of the divine nature adopted into the divine family we are conscious that the spirit of sonship is in our hearts witnessing that we have been born from above we realize that we are not only sons but heirs heirs of god and joint heirs with christ our father loves us knows our frame, views us with paternal pitifulness, own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Be not anxious. There are other and greater interests at stake. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It is the great object of God that his long-expected kingdom should come that purity as of the dawn should replace the reign of corruption in night, that joyous life should replace death, and love, hatred. For this he has been at work all through the long centuries, nor will he stay his hand till angel voices proclaim that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of his Christ. In his great kindness he has called us in to help him accomplish his high purpose, and lays it upon us as a special burden that we should not rest, nor allow him to rest, until the kingdom come, and his will be done on earth as in heaven. For this we must labor and pray. Be anxious for this, if you will. Lie awake at night to mourn over the condition of lost souls, if you can. Expend tears and prayers in untiring supplication for the lost. Whilst you care for God's concerns, God will care for yours. The great contractor who has undertaken a line of railway or the construction of a vast reservoir among the hills knows the necessity of providing for the well-being of the thousands of navvies engaged with their spades or trowels if they are to do work which will not disgrace him he at least must see that their physical health and well-being are guaranteed is it likely then that god will be less careful and thoughtful of his own sons whom he has called into fellowship with himself does he not know that we shall do our best work when we are free from anxious care is he so unrighteous as to forget us, who labor day and night for the purpose which lies so near his heart? It is impossible to suppose it, but as we seek his kingdom, he will seek our welfare, with both hands, earnestly and carefully. Rest on this promise, which he gave who is incarnate truth. All these things shall be added. BE NOT ANXIOUS it will not rob to-morrow of its anxiety, though it will deprive to-day of its strength. Take, therefore, no thought for the morrow, for the morrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. From these words it is clear that every morrow will have some anxiety and every day some evil. No sky without some clouds to fleck its blue, no lot without its crook, no paschal lamb without its bitter herbs, we shall never be totally free from anxiety of one kind or another until we have passed the gates of pearl how much we worry to-day in the hope of anticipating and cancelling the worry of to-morrow we shall not succeed there always will be something to cause us annoyance perplexity and chagrin but as the day so will the strength be just enough with not one grain to spare indeed the anxiety will be permitted to drive us to the strong for strength, as a hard winter will drive even the timid deer down to the homes of men. To worry, therefore, about to-morrow, is to overpress the strength of to-day, which is enough for to-day's burden, but not enough for to-day's and to-morrow's also. If you try to carry to-day's burdens by actual endurance, and to-morrow's by anticipation, what wonder that you break down, aging prematurely, and sowing plentiful silver among the black locks of young manhood. For all these reasons, let us not be anxious. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. End of chapter 17